welcome. It's indisputable. I'm your host, Rashad Richard, gonna be with you. We have a lot on the agenda today. Breaking down news of the day with me, my contributor, none other than Jordan Yule, TYT contributor, all star, always a brilliant analysis. Top story of the day, federal appointed Judge Hughes, who was on the program just days ago because of discriminatory laws being passed in Texas. Well, guess what? She gets a letter from an attorney from a major law firm calling her an animal. That attorney has now been fired. Let's go down the rabbit hole here. Uh, let's put up a picture of the attorney in question. I think this is quite fascinating that we're even dealing with this in 2024. Um, let's put up the attorney uh, in question, um, the attorney that sent this letter, Ben um, Alderholt. Ben decided it was a good idea to send Judge Erica Hughes a letter addressing Judge Hughes by her first name. Erica, as if they know each other, and then saying, who do you think you are? End quote, Judge Erica Hughes spoke out after receiving what she calls a threatening and harassing letter from a Houston attorney who has now been terminated because of it. Quote, she said, I was shocked and surprised to receive that letter. There's more. She says, calling me Erica. As if we are friends, or as if he knows me, started off in the wrong direction. The letter progresses and gets progressively worse, says Judge Hughes. In fact, the line in the letter Alder Holt wrote that stings most for Judge Hughes is this quote, political animals who treat our judiciary as political games. The animals part, she says, stands out to me. That an individual in 2024 would show such disdain for an individual they've never met, says Judge Hughes. The letter was written on Alder Holt's company letterhead. Law firm Coates Rose tells me Alder Holt practiced poor judgment and he has now been terminated. Judge Hughes, a military veteran, Believes lawsuits filed against multiple black female judicial candidates in this election created an atmosphere for people to send the candidates such letters. Quote, I expect to be attacked when I serve in the military. I don't expect to be attacked when I run for a political position at a party in a democracy in the United States, Judge Hughes explains. While multiple black female candidates have had their eligibility or qualifications questioned, we've had those black female candidates on this show. Judge Hughes was elected a Harris County Criminal Court judge in 2018, later appointed as a federal immigration judge. Quote, so no one could attack my qualifications. This was another way to try to get me removed from the ballot, explains Judge Hughes. The lawsuit attempted to remove Judge Hughes from the ballot, accused her of forging 102 names on a petition um, and the court's Completely dismissed it, said it was basically frivolous. So in a criminal court, that's 102 allegations and punishable by felony to uh, two to 10 years in jail. It's false, of course, Judge Hughes explains. The Texas Supreme Court threw out that claim against her, but the judge says she still has received threatening letters ever since the suit. 
quote is very disheartening. In 2024, I received letters like this calling me an animal, calling me by my first name. I referenced the year because the history in this country of slavery. I don't expect that in 2024, democracy is what this country was built on. I served in the military so I can run as a judicial candidate in a free country as long as I'm qualified, Judge Hughes said. Ben Adderhalt sent Fox 26 a statement saying, quote, uh, in part saying, uh, using the letterhead of the firm, he says that I was unintentional and careless, but was an error of judgment. And he apologized for using his company letterhead. But again, um, the firm confirms he has now been terminated because of the letter itself. Now, if you don't believe there is extreme racism happening against these particular judges and judicial candidates in Texas, I want to remind you of what the judge said on Indisputable just days ago. For those who may not be aware of what you're talking about, give us some context to that particular election and what happened. So in 2018, we Use the hashtag Black Girl Magic, Houston 19. It was the largest amount of African American women that it ran at one time and won an election here in Houston, which is Harris County, where we all are running again. We took a photo, it went viral and it went national news. And again, in Texas and anywhere, it's the largest amount of African American female women to win judicial benches. And they were all different benches, ranging from criminal to family to juvenile. Um, to civil benches. And so the law has changed since we won. Yeah, so basically the legislature in the state of Texas decided to start changing the law after a record number of black women were elected to the judiciary. They started to change qualification rules. No longer is it okay just to have a bar license, now you must have all of these other qualifications. And then they have utilized these additional statutory rules to disqualify only black female candidates currently running for judicial office. And here's the kicker, those who are already incumbents and elected, primarily old white men, they are immune from the new law. Wow. Here's the picture that got them upset. Here it is right here. You see that picture? That's the picture. A few years ago, this picture went viral. Those are the winners. Those are your new judicial officers of the court. You see, context matters. Keep that picture up. Let me tell you why this is a powerful thing. Judges make rulings based on three elements. The fourth being the law, but three elements are primary. Their personal experiences, exposures, and environment. Experiences, exposures, and environment. Typically, if you have diversity in those three E's, you have a better understanding of the people in front of you. When you do not have diversity in those three E's, you have a very judgmental, adversarial, and some would even say antithetical relationship to those in front of you. Now, let's go to Jordan, my dear brother. I want you to give us your ideas as to what you see happening in Houston. 
Well, there's a couple of different things here, right? So let's talk about the letter first. In his apology, he's sorry only for using his law firm's letterhead. <laughs> right. He doesn't realize what the root of the issue is. You called a black female judge by her first name, okay? inherently disrespectful to somebody in that position. Uh, we'll get into the motives in a second, but it's <laughs> it, it's fixed on his use of animal. Like that is deeply, deliberately, and objectively racist, especially in that context. The fact that he's comfortable using those terms and only sees the issue of using law firm letterhead is just preposterous. So I'm sorry she's even in that position, but let's talk about the broader issue, right? This is a massive city. Houston has a population of what, 2.2 million people? We should celebrate that our judicial system reflects the makeup of this country, of their community, of that city. The idea that only black women judges are subject to this type of scrutiny is ridiculous. It's rooted in an old racist understanding of the law in this country. You might even call that analysis critical race theory, <laughs> looking at the racist right. history in the legal system, but that's taboo these days. But it's important. It's important for understanding moments like this when you see the application only being applied to young, new upstart candidates and people who are running for judicial positions, many of them black and female, but not applying it to the old white guard. And that's the problem. That's one of the many problems with our judicial system. It doesn't reflect our community it doesn't reflect our population. And for everyone to receive a fair trial, for everyone to have a fair consideration, the judicial makeup should reflect that diversity in this country. Very well said. We will bring you updates as they come. Hell of a thing happened. So Anderson Cooper thought he was going to one up Senator Nina Turner. In what, in my opinion, turned out to be a massive misfire by Anderson Cooper. And I'm significantly disappointed in his rhetoric, but I'm going to give you the twists and turns. Let me first take you to the segment. Here it is. When they are, in fact, suffering, and I am young enough to remember, colleagues, when Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and also Congresswoman Cori Bush called for a ceasefire very early on, they were called abhorrent. Now fast forward to all of these bodies laying in the wake and people who are living through this every single day. So I, I do, By the way, there's also been slaughter in, in Israel I was gonna as well. say, so, so there, there's, yeah, no, there's a I lot get, of pain on both sides. No, so I'm not, really I'm not. a lecture on the problem, no, but I, I'm talking about yeah. the, the politics of this tonight, how, what to you would be a victory as somebody who was calling yeah. for this uncommitted vote? What to you would be a victory tonight on, to get that message yes, across? I'm not. I'm going to go to Senator Turner's response in just a moment, but let me just say this in all due respect to Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper, you said that that she should not lecture you. It's a panel discussion. Everybody is there to talk. There are producers that tell people when to wrap up. Um, you're literally saying don't talk on a talk show. It's quite insane to me. And then the commentary of Senator Turner was simply about the humanity, humanitarian dynamics associated with the slaughter that we see. And you talked about the pain on both sides. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, Anderson. Uh, but here's Senator Turner's response. I'm not denying that pain 
All I'm saying that at a certain point after October the 7th, it becomes clear. I mean, you have a right wing prime minister. Right. We don't need to read said, the issue. But, but you understand what I'm saying? I'm not denying anybody's pain. What I am saying is that this president and our country has the power to say to Netanyahu, we need a permanent ceasefire. The only time Within hostages. Reason, though, if I can the only, push back wait, one more point. The only time hostages were released is when we had that brief ceasefire. That is another reason I, why. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I okay. All right. So you see the entanglement happening here, right? Now, this is going to be an interesting saga. Once again, I want to remind you, Anderson Cooper said that there's pain on both sides. You see, the reason why Senator Nina Turner has to remind them of the pain and the suffering of the Palestinians is because the pain and the suffering of Israelis is typically, their humanity is typically assumed. You have to proclaim the humanity in many conversations of the Palestinians. And there is no war between Israeli and Palestinians. And the Palestinians that they are talking about, that they are killing, In Gaza, have the average age of 19.2 years of age. 40 plus percent of the population of Palestinians in Gaza, 14 years of age and under. They do not have significant political, international, economic, etc. ties. They don't have that. They have voices like Senator Nina Turner, myself, Jordan Yule, and a few others. So Senator Turner was on my radio program this morning and responded as well. Here it is. Senator Turner, how did you not slap everybody on that damn panel? I don't, <laughs> I don't let, me, let me say this to you. Uh, sister, I was mad. I said, yeah. what the hell? I, I, it, was, it was one of those, you know what it was? It was equivocation. It was equivocation. Yes. It was Donald Trump in a different formation saying there are good people on both sides here. That's right. That's right, Dr. Richie. And to get people, I mean, I was calling, you know, I was calling on Black Jesus with the sandals. I know you, I know, I know. You know, because it's so hard. And I want our listeners to understand some of the microaggressions that happen when, you know, you're a Black woman or a Black person trying to get a point across. And now, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm being told not to lecture when all I simply was trying to do, I was there (laughs) to talk about. On a talk show, you're being told not to talk. I love how you break that down. But there's some real realities, and we know that this is both complicated, but then it's not complicated. And when I say it's complicated, we know that there are thousands of years worth of history in the Middle East. Duly noted, what's not complicated is that at a certain point, Uh people who just love humanity, who care about Palestinian babies, who care about Israeli babies who care about humanity uh-huh. have got to come together and say, we got to put a stop to this. And then we have to find a permanent way to have, to build, to create. Because the peace is not going to happen through osmosis. We're going to have to make it happen. And so many of the world's leaders have said, we need a permanent ceasefire. Uh, even, uh, Dr. Richard, you know, the, the bishops of the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, they came out really strong. We know the history of that church with Richard uh-huh. Allen. I believe it was either in the 1700s or the 1800s that that church was created because black people could not worship That's right. uh, worship in the white 
uh, Methodist Episcopal Church. I mean, there's a story about how uh, black parishioners were on their knees praying Mm -hmm. and the white folks in the church came and uh, pulled them up off their knees in the church. Mm. So I I encourage our listeners to go and read that history. But fast forwarding to today, the bishops of the AME Church have called out uh, the state of Israel, and it is the right-wing government. I want to be very clear. It is the Netanyahu government that is creating this. And what really got to me, Doc, and I, uh, I can't wait to hear what you have to say, is just the total dismissal of the pain that Palestinian people are feeling, the fact that 30,000 people have been killed, and that's only what, what they can find in terms of reports. I'm sure mm-hmm. it's more than that. Yeah. And that the people who are alive, though, are living through famine. They can't get health care. Babies are being born. People are undergoing surgeries without anesthesia. Can you imagine what that feels like on an everyday basis? So I always said to my colleagues, we can sit up here and be cool, calm, and collected and talk about a horse race and center President Biden and former uh, President Donald J. Trump. I was simply censoring the people closest to the pain. And that is what the Listen to Michigan campaign was and is all about. That's correct. Now to Anderson Cooper, you know, Anderson, I think you are a good man. I am disappointed in your current statement, but I do believe you have a good heart. I remember a few years ago, Mr. Cooper, you said this. That were very fine people on both sides. Fine people on both sides, which is a rather broad-minded interpretation, which is not true. That's certainly not in the video you saw, which was the demonstration from Friday night. Not according to a journalist who was there in the crowds who told us point blank that what you saw there was exactly what it looked like. Neo-Nazis, other white supremacists marching, spewing hate. The White House initially defended the president's remarks, but later the president gave a more full-throated statement saying in part, racism is evil. And those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. What's interesting, though, was that this was not the president's first instinct, which was to avoid a full-throated condemnation of what seemed plain to see. Something similar played out on the campaign trail when candidate Trump was asked about racist remarks by David Duke, a figure citizen Trump had been commenting on and even disavowing since 1991. Anderson, you're a smart man. Equivocation is equivocation. In your response to Senator Turner to remind Senator Turner, to one, not lecture you, and two, there's pain on both sides here. Well, does it not seem quite similar to equivocation that happened from the White House during your coverage of Donald Trump? Let me make it plain to you, Anderson. When you have children being bombed by an active military supported by the United States of America, military led by Benjamin Netanyahu. Over 80% of Israelis believe that Netanyahu is to blame for security failures. That's in polling data. 73% of them would like him to resign. That is recent polling data. Israelis don't want Netanyahu in charge, okay? Now, children being bombed? Killed, eliminated. By proxy, you have this Hamas argument. So Netanyahu says, no, we have to do this because Hamas is hiding in Gaza. They're using Palestinians as 
Human shields, we have no choice. If Hamas was hiding in Israel, I guarantee you Netanyahu would not indiscriminately kill Israelis in order to find Hamas. That's all you need to know to understand that there is a devaluing of human life inside of this conflict. And Nina Turner was reminding everyone of their greater nature on that panel. Jordan, thoughts here? Yeah, think about the role CNN is playing here in shaping people's understanding and shaping the discussion of this issue. So Nina Turner, from what I can tell, was the only progressive voice on that panel, completely lopsided, including Bakari Sellers, who, while they're talking about Rashida Tlaib, runs a pack that received over a million dollars from a right-wing mega donor who helps fund APAC. Bakari Sellers has long ties to APAC, and the goal of that pack is to unseat Rashida Tlaib. So the fact that he's there without disclosing that or them providing that context when they're talking about people like her is unethical. But as she's talking about this, they all rush to jump down her throat. They're talking about the vote uncommitted push in Michigan. Mm-hmm. That is important context for why people were doing that. That's right. You need to include that in the discussion. The fact that she couldn't even get that out without panelists, not even just the moderator, but other panelists trying to silence her shows just how skewed the discussion is in that at that level in the media. And that doesn't represent the, the views of a majority of Americans. How you choose to vote in the primary does not necessarily reflect your view on a ceasefire. And a majority of the country want a ceasefire. And you see in communities like Dearborn, my God, it was just overwhelming how many people, how many people are upset with Biden on that. Yep. And they're going into this election cycle, taking that for granted, just assuming people will just suck it up and deal with it when their friends or relatives or just other people are being massacred. And just yesterday, the IDF, or last night, the IDF fired on hundreds and hundreds of people who were trying to get aid killing over 100 of them. That is a cold-blooded massacre. And the fact that we have to equivocate, say, oh, they're on both sides, they're suffering on both sides. Look, I'm sorry, but that only happened on October 7th. To that size and scale, that was one day. There might be spats here and there, but if you wanna talk about size and scale, it has been every single day in Gaza by the IDF with the US's support. And that's what people are upset about. That's why people voted uncommitted and that she can't even provide that context is disgusting. So well said, dear brother. A man found hanging from a tree. Investigation underway, put it up full mass. This happened in North Georgia. Georgia Bureau of Investigation, GBI, is still waiting on the autopsy results for 29-year-old Travante Schubert Helton. Mr. Helton, whose body was found hanging, from a tree last week in North Georgia, is a a hiker, excuse me, found the body on the trail not far from High Shoals Falls in the Swallow Creek Wildlife Management Area. This took place on the 21st of this month after the hiker reported the discovery to the town's county sheriff. Local authorities, as well as the Georgia Natural Department of Resources, called the GBI to assist in the investigation. In a press release, GBI investigators stated 
that Mr. Hilton's death appears to be an isolated incident based on a preliminary investigation. State authorities also said Mr. Hilton was by himself at the wildlife management area. GBI spokesperson Kimberly Williams told Atlanta Black Star that state authorities were requested to investigate Mr. Hilton's death since his body was found on state property. Williams stated no additional information was available to release at this time, but said the autopsy report is pending completion. The investigation remains ongoing. Until Hilton's investigation is completed, there is no way to truly know. But what we do know is Georgia has a rich history of lynching black folks in the state. According to the new Georgia Encyclopedia, Georgia has a total of 458 reported lynchings, only exceeded by Mississippi, 538. During the 1880s and 1890s, instances of lethal mob violence increased steadily, peaking in 1899 when 27 Georgians fell victim to lynch mobs. Between 1890 and 1900, Georgia averaged more than one mob killing per month. Now, I want you to understand a mob killing. These are citizens typically sometimes sprinkled with members of law enforcement, and they just simply kill somebody. And they go home and they eat dinner. Okay, so understand the context of a mob lynching or mob killing, all right? The frequency of mob violence declined somewhat in the first decade of the 20th century, by, but by 9-11, lynch mobs were active again killing 19 Georgians. Of the Georgians who were victims of the lynch mobs, 95% were black. But Georgia's lynch violence was almost always perpetuated by white mobs looking to kill black men. And the 5% who were not black were supporting black people, okay? All right, now, Jordan, this is a hell of a thing. And actually, we've reported on stories like this before out of Georgia, where no conclusion was found, except for the fact that a black man was hanging from a tree. This is not the first time. Um, this is probably one of the most um, national, but this is not the first time in the last five years this has happened in Georgia. What say you? It's it's tragic. It's absolutely horrific. You know, as you wait for details, you, it's weird. It's you you hope it's not uh, a lynching, but then would it be a suicide? It's kind of like a you're in a really difficult situation as you try to parse this story. But no matter what, it, the outcome is tragic. So I feel terrible for his family and his loved ones. I hope they could find solace or, God forbid, justice soon. But this is this is heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. It's just very, very young, and you hate to see yep. that. We're going to stay on top of it. We want answers just like everyone else. I'm the GM. Okay. I was doing a little training. I normally don't check people in, but so I was doing a little training. I'm the best. Fans, but all I want to do um, is lay down, and this bastard won't let me stay one here. One second, ma'am. No, so, don't listen don't to him. Don't you put your hands ah, on me? Back up, or you're gonna go to jail. Don't you? Fuck you! I will go to jail. I bet you will. Go fuck yourself. Man, that's called OG status right there. OG care in one hand. Okay. This is a person who has been caring and for a long time. Their uniforms and guns do not scare her. Um, here's more. It all started with a discrepancy on the reservation. Priceline booked her for three nights. She said it was four. Disney made a mistake. I said I would deal with it. And he got nasty. He didn't like my answer. And he goes, you're not allowed to stay here. You are trespassed. And he can go himself and drop 
said the first one, I asked her to not drop any more. How like this? And, and then she went off like that. If I have nothing but the utmost respect for cops. Nothing. Yeah. I would like to punch him in the face. She was trying to spit at me. He's wrong. I didn't spit at you. You're lucky I didn't kick you in the balls. Don't touch me. Get your hands off me. I don't care. How about that? I don't care. Good. Man, you need Man. to leave the property. I can't. I have nowhere to go. I'm not Unfortunately, leaving. if you're not leaving, you're going to jail. You, I'm not leaving. Okay, then you're going to jail. Don't come. I got a bad back. Get out of your mouth. I got a lot on my back. That was not so And then you hit me? Are you out of your mind? I got a rod up my back, You're please. going to jail, man. I'm sorry. I'm no, so sorry. It's too late for all that. You're a grown woman. You, you don't need to act like that. I got Disney on the phone. That's fantastic. I got a car full of stuff. Please don't go in my wallet. You? Maybe. Okay. I can't get up myself. Yeah, I do you can't. need help? Right, right, no, one, no, I two. need two arms. I got fake knees and a rod up my back and two torn rotator cuffs. Okay. Please put the cuffs in the front, please. I won't do anything. Yeah, it's sad. Put up the picture for a mask. Now, I have a few elements to highlight. One, the extreme patience and professionalism of these police officers. I have reported on stories where Black elderly women were arrested for not paying their trash bill. There was no mercy. We have reported on stories where elderly individuals who happened to be people of color not only were arrested, but falsely charged with crimes they never committed. In this case, obviously, there is criminal conduct and there was extreme patience by the officers until they had no choice but to detain the individual. And then after the individual is, is detained, you see a changing of the narrative, which speaks to their volition, their cognitive awareness of the situation. And I know some people will say, well, you know, she was just not, she was not in her right mind. She did not understand what was happening, but she understood clearly what was happening when handcuffs hit her wrist. Um, and she remembered everything, uh, even at the point that she started sipping. All right, per unspoken crime murder was on August 7, 2023. Officers responded to a luxury hotel involving an upset and intoxicated guest, according to the report. When officers arrived, they met with the general manager who stated the woman in question booked the wrong dates for the hotel. Okay. And this was the conflict when she insisted on getting an extra night for no charge for free and was refused this courtesy. Because the hotel staff was not allowed to do that. She had an extreme reaction to it. And the rest is on camera. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm actually glad that the officers handled her uh, you know, delicately uh, because all of those elements are probably true. I mean, she has lived a long life and had some, you know, rods and things to hold stuff in place. Um, so hopefully she was not. Injured, but I will tell you this, according to the video, she is still alive. All right, Jordan, thoughts here. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the patience of the cops, but like when I was watching this, I couldn't help but think, what would the reaction be if it was somebody different? If they yep. look different, if they have a different skin color. And unfortunately, I, I don't think it would be a demonstration of the same sort of restraint. Her comfort just 
sticking her finger in their face, screaming at them, cursing at them, potentially spitting at them. You couldn't really tell in the video, but a mention of it was 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 there threatening to hit them. Just absurd behavior Um, and nothing. Just patience, oh, carefully, gently arresting her. I mean, she's threatening to hit them just in any other circumstance, even if it was like a young black teenager. I can't imagine it would be as gentle. It's just really, it's like, okay, great. They can, we know they're capable of restraint, but that's right. Why don't we see it 100% of the time? Just that's right. It's so ridiculous. Yep. I mean, literally, we just reported on a child um, who, who decided, you know, he had to go. It was time for him to go to the restroom and he was inside of his mother's car. He discreetly did so um, outside of an attorney's office that his mother was seeing. And the officers arrested him. Well, those officers got fired, but they put, they, they arrested him and then made him go through probation. Um, it was insane. Uh, but you are right. If this would have been somebody else, uh, different outcome for sure. And here's why. It was such a delicate situation and the way they handled her seemed so humanitarian because they see themselves in her. They see their mother, their own grandmother in her. Now, the only thing that I'm asking is for officers to always see their humanity in humanity and see their mother or their father, their grandmother, their grandfather in humanity around them because we all are truly family. What are we doing? Ed. What are you doing? Wait all day. Oh, 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 oh. Really? Where does it say that? It says stop here on red. You're the one sitting on your phone doing all this. Wasn't on my phone. Really? No, I wasn't. Yeah, I saw you looking no, no, down doing everything else. No, no, I was moving something in my bag. Okay, well. And I'll see you with a ticket and I'll call your supervisor. Sure, sounds okay. good. Let me get your badge number. <laughs> you want to get arrested? You're going to get arrested yeah. for assaulting a yeah. civilian. Yep. Put it a full mass. Look at that. How the mighty have fallen. How many times have you done that to people, sir? Hmm? In uniform and dared them to do something. In Connecticut, 57-year-old Meriden Police Corporal, this man has rank and supervision. Alan Ganter has now been charged with assault after what you witnessed there. This happened in December 2023. It was caught on the victim's dash camera. Thankfully, he had one. The video shows the off-duty cop with more than 20 years of law enforcement experience reaching into the citizen's vehicle and punching him. Okay. On December 8th, 2023, 37-year-old Thomas Brocuglio was driving his company vehicle with the dash cam recording when he approached a Toyota Tacoma at a red light at an intersection in Rocky Hill. The Toyota that was honking, the Toyota he was honking at was being driven by Ganter. 
Corporal Ganter began taking pictures of the license plates. And Brocuglio accused Ganter of being on his phone as the confrontation escalated. Quote, yeah, I saw you looking down. Uh, everything else, said Brocuglio. No, I was. I, I was moving something in my bag, responded Ganter. Ganter then threatened to give Brocuglio a ticket. It's just insane. How, what? You're not even on duty. All right. Um, and to call his own supervisor. Uh, Ganter drove away as Brocuglio placed a call to Rocky Hill Police 911. Why? Because he was assaulted. I was just assaulted by a police officer. He punched me in the face through my window, he explained. Rocky Hill Police responded and generated an incident report saying the punch left him dazed and possibly concussed, meaning concussion. Rocky Hill Police made contact with Ganter at his residence. Look at him. The interaction recorded on body cam footage, Ganter asked the Rocky Hill officer, quote, is he pressing charges against me like for breach because I yelled at him and stuff? Uh, the Rocky Hill officer replied, mm, for assault because you hit him, end quote. <laughs> and then Ganter says, he's saying that I hit him. The other officer says, yeah, and he has video that you hit him. <laughs> I love it. I'm, sorry, I'm having too much fun with this. I hate the guy had to get punched. I hate that. All right, never should have happened. But talk about a responsible adult who knew exactly what to do, had a dash cam video, talking about perfect circumstance. He picked the right one that day, damn it. That man called 911 immediately, had an incident report, had the video ready for them. And now a person who has been a law enforcement officer for 20 years, obviously this is not his first time assaulting a citizen for nothing. That's my opinion. Ganter then asked officers if he can charge. Now watch this now. Bro, Cuglio, can I, can I charge him? Can we charge him? There's nothing where I can press for breach for him yelling at me, whatever it is. But let me just put this picture back up. Sir, you've been a damn cop for 20 years. You are asking your colleagues, is there a way I can press charges against him for, for speaking? It's unbelievable. Ultimately, Ganter, uh, who is also a school resource officer for the Thomas Edison Middle School, was charged with breach of peace and third degree assault. The Meriden police sent Fox 61 a statement saying an internal affairs investigation determined Ganter did violate the police department's rules of conduct. And as a result, was suspended for a whopping five days without pay and will be required to attend de-escalation training for three consecutive years. Oh my goodness. Officials said, quote, at the time corporate Ganter was, was placed on administrative duty, he was also removed from his assignment as a school resource officer. And as a result of the discipline, which was rendered as a part of the um, IA investigation, Corporal Ganter was permanently removed from his assignment as an SRO, school resource officer. Uh, this is the chief of police. Now, chief, the next time he does this to someone, when I tell you they're going to sue this department into oblivion because now you have what's called negligent retention. Negligent retention of an employee. You know, gun damn well, he has this affinity 
to violate the rights of citizens and you kept them on board. Uh, so this is the chief of police, his name is Roberto Rosado, per Fox 61. After issuing the statement, they said they would not be discussing the matter any further, nor would anyone be available for any on-camera interview. Good, I can just talk about you then, with your picture up, since you won't talk to us. All right, Jordan, thoughts here. Yeah, the, the clip of the cop when they show up to his house was incredible. Right. Yeah, Him dumbfounded that he couldn't just punish this guy, just make up a charge. You can't just give this guy a ticket for something for yelling at me. And his shock when he realized that not only do they know that he punched him, but it's on video. He's just like, oh, I'm screwed. You can see it in his face. Right. But the fact that he is trying to just slap charges on this guy for no just with no justification illustrates where cops see themselves. The, and the stop alone, just the confrontation alone. Oh, you want to beep at me? You want to yell at me? I'll hit you and try to get you to give you a ticket. I'll call my supervisor. The guy didn't do anything. And it shows where they see themselves in society. That's above the law. There's a two-tier justice system and they're above it. They don't have to do anything. You have one for the wealthy, one for civilians, and then cops just don't get in trouble. I'm I'm shocked he even got removed as a school resource officer. He has to go to trainings, okay, but he's still gonna have his job. He's still yeah. going to be a police officer, despite this incident showing there is a clear risk of abuse of power with this guy. And they don't care because it's all an insider's club. There you go. Uh, and I'm sure there's history here um, where he's done this before. If a man is willing to uh, to overturn somebody's life in such a way for something so petty, you don't think he's done it before. He's been there 20 damn years. Of course, he's done it before. That's why he posed the question to the other cops. Can we do this to him? Are we? You're not down with that? We're being recorded right now. Oh, I got it. I see. Very sad story. A mother found deceased after warning her family that she was being held hostage. Put up the picture for a mask. Very sad story. 20-year-old Mahogany Jackson, a young Alabama mother, was found shot to death Monday morning. Her body left under a mattress on a roadside. The discovery followed after Jackson had messaged her family Sunday that she had been taken hostage. Per a Wednesday press conference, police stated Jackson had also been sexually assaulted and tortured for hours before being murdered. The discovery of Jackson's body was made at about 2.19 a.m. This was on a Monday when a passerby called Birmingham 911 to report a body on the side of the road at 17th Street Southwest and Laurel Avenue. Birmingham police and the Birmingham Fire and Rescue Service responded. Jackson was pronounced dead on the scene from the gunshot wound. Her mother, Gail Maddox, posted this on Facebook at about 6.30 a.m. that morning. They killed my child, end quote. Seven suspects between the ages of 18 and 25 have been identified and charged in connection with the death. Top row, left to right, 26-year-old Tija Lewis, 23-year-old Giovanni Clapp, 23-year-old Yosinia McCall. Bottom row, left to right, 25-year-old Blair Green, 25-year-old Francis Harris, 18-year-old Jeremy McDowell, 24-year-old Brandon Hope. Charges include capital murder, first degree kidnapping, first degree sodomy. Six out of the seven suspects reportedly 
have this charge. Multiple suspects are also charged with assault, assault with a weapon for allegedly pistol whipping this child. The attack was videotaped, according to the authorities. Was reportedly it was reportedly sparked by a minor dispute between Jackson and one of the suspects over an alleged theft. Quote, this is undoubtedly one of the most heinous acts I have ever seen in my career. Birmingham Police Chief Scott Thurman said at the Wednesday press conference. Police said the assault took place at multiple locations. Quote, the actions displayed by these defendants were barbaric and have no place in society. Jefferson County District Attorney Danny Carr said, according to AL.com, quote, the senseless and inhumane treatment perpetrated on young Mahogany Jackson was very disturbing and violent. The ordeal began early Sunday when family members say Jackson texted them. She said she was being held hostage and to send the police. She shared a location with them on the cell phone. Maddox previously told AL.com she was on her way to pick up her son, daughter-in-law, and granddaughter from the airport in Atlanta when her daughter called her and said she received a disturbing message from Jackson. Maddox looked at her phone. It was 7.46 a.m. And she too had missed calls from Facebook Messenger. But Maddox was on the phone, so she did not receive the notification. Quote, She sent me a text message that said she was being held hostage at center location. Maddox said she told her mom not to call her, but to call the police. Family members rushed to that location, as did Birmingham PD. Jackson was nowhere to be found at Serenity Apartments in Birmingham's Powderly community. When police and family members showed up there, one of the female suspects whom Jackson knew answered the door and finally allowed them inside, but they did not see Jackson. That woman told police. Jackson had been there, but it left at 2 a.m. I know that's not true because she sent me the message and the location at 7.46 a.m., Maddox replied. Maddox feared something terrible had happened. Telling AL.com during the initial search for Jackson, quote, I feel it in my stomach. My daughter would never say, call the police, but she was afraid, and that's why she asked us to, end quote. After the suspects were identified, Maddox posted their booking photos on her Facebook with a one-word caption, monsters. And additionally, per her Facebook post as of today, she appears to be receiving videos of her daughter's violent assault. Maddox pleaded, please, I'm begging you all, don't send us any videos. We are suffering enough. That's my child. Please stop. <clears throat> Can't take it. Please stop. So sad. Um, I feel for this mother, this family. It's unimaginable. I could not imagine how I would respond um, if something like that happened to my daughter, um, or how I would feel afterwards. Um, so our prayers, our positive um, thoughts are with you. And um, if there's anything we can do, please let us know. Uh, Jordan, thoughts here. Yeah, it's it's horrific. I feel terrible for the family. Um, just the cruelty inherent in some people is just really sad. The fact that people would do this to somebody over a what is ultimately a minor alleged infraction. There's got to be a different way to resolve that. But to yeah. 
assault and kill someone and film it just like it's tantamount to torture just really disgusting i I hope that family could find peace very soon yeah same here all right um women rescued from locked rooms inside of a church okay i want you to put up this picture first hell of a story in st louis grace Kapindo, Munga Fanj Mali, and Pazi Heri have been arrested for after uncovering what was described as a cult-like church, where officers found women whose faces were covered with veils and they were held captive. They were facing kidnapping and they are facing kidnapping and assault charges now because of it. That arrest happened on February 21st at the Mount of Olives Ministry Church. Police officers were called a little before 1.30 a.m. after a woman had been found bound with ropes and bleeding from the head. She told officers she had been confined against a wheel in, in a room in the church. The women, uh, The woman said she was only given water and beatings. That's it. She had an obvious wound on her head. Cops went to the church where she showed them to the room where she was being held. You see that church right there. The room had a bottle of water and a bucket with feces and urine inside, the affidavit said. Officers then arrested the three who were inside the church and took them to the city justice center where they are being held without bond. Assistant Circuit Attorney Chris Faber reportedly described the Mount of Olives ministry as cult-like. The circuit attorney said the churchgoers called women angels and the good angels wore white veils in a white room. Officers tried to lift their veils to check on their well-being and the women started screaming, reported in the narrative. Capendo's attorney, Chris Combs, Reportedly said at the hearing that he was sympathetic to the victim, but his client was not involved in any kidnapping or assault. He claimed Capendo and the other two men were taken into custody because of a language barrier. Church services are held in Swahili, he said. Several members of the church, including the victim's mother and sister, were there to support the suspect. So um, Faber said the victim's family had recently brought her from Kansas City uh, to uh, for a mental health treatment. They put her in the church for what they termed as, quote, healing. A judge ordered uh, Capendo to be held without bond. The other two defendants will have their bond hearing when a Swahili interpreter can be present, record show. So, so according to the group's GoFundMe, Mount Olive Ministry is headed by Reverend Anna Nayasa, uh, a Riverfront Times reporter, went to the Mount Olive Ministry and talked to his pastor, Danny Stephen, in the parking lot. Stephen said that someone had slapped the victim, but that it wasn't any of the three men arrested. Why are you holding these three people, innocent people, he says. Stephen was present in the courtroom this afternoon along with other parishioners, none of whom spoke to the media. Now, I, somebody knows something. Somebody knows something. So this obviously is not just um, 
a, a slap, somebody hitting a person. How do you explain the bondage? How do you explain the feces and the urine? The room that she described was there. It's not as if she made it up, it was present. Um, these questions require answers. And I take the same stance I take here as I take with the Catholic Church. If you say nothing when abuses like this are happening, whatever narrative they paint your organization with, you deserve it. You know this is happening, you say nothing, you do nothing, you do not advocate for protection or accountability, you deserve whatever narrative comes to you. Now, damn it, somebody knows something. All right, join the thoughts here. I mean, at the outset, I should say I'm not religious, but I think you you need to respect if it holds a, a place in someone's life and they appreciate it or they practice, that's fine. Unfortunately, it seems like people too often use organized religion as a cover for abusive behavior or bad behavior. And it's it's not even the majority of cases. It's just it is an easy cover for people to do terrible things. And unfortunately, people exploit that. You have so you have millions, billions around the world of people who practice their faith and do their best to try to do no harm to others. And I think that's that's fine. But it really makes my stomach turn when you see stories like this, which unfortunately seem like they happen, they happen fairly often. Uh, so I don't know what the best recourse is because you want people to have freedom of religion. You want to respect that. We should celebrate it. But at the same time, we can't have it being used as cover for just terrible, repugnant behavior. That's it's right. really complicated. I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer. Yeah. All right, we'll bring you updates, guaranteed to be some. Mitch McConnell is actually stepping down from GOP leadership. And here's the announcement. As long as I'm drawing breath on this earth, I will defend American exceptionalism. So as I've been thinking about when I would deliver some news to the Senate, I always imagined a moment when I had total clarity and peace about the sunset of my work. A moment when I'm certain I have helped preserve the ideals I so strongly believe. That day arrived today. All right, um, so he's going to step down from leadership. If you remember, he had a couple of um, incidents on television, live um, proclamations that went viral. Uh, here's one of them. This week has been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of uh, Do you want to say anything else to the press? Let's go back to you. Let's go ahead, John. All right. 
Put up the picture full mask, give you the background and some foreground. So Senator Mitch McConnell, long term, long time top Senate Republican, said on Wednesday that he would give up his spot as the party's leader following the November elections, acknowledging that this is something that the party would be good for the party. And it seems as if basically the party is headed by Donald Trump now. His decision reported earlier by the AP was not a surprise. Mr. McConnell suffered a serious fall last year and experienced some episodes where he momentarily froze in front of the media. He has also faced rising resistance within his ranks for his push to provide continued military assistance to Ukraine, as well as his close to the vest leadership style. And his toxic relationship with Mr. Trump whom he blamed for the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol after orchestrating his acquittal in an impeachment trial on charges of inciting an insurrection. Putting him profoundly at odds with the rest of his party. Mr. McConnell had said that he would serve out his full Senate term ending in 2027, but had been more opaque about whether he would remain, try to remain leader after November. His departure after the elections would touch off a contest to succeed him. Three senior Republicans, John Nathune, South Dakota, John Cornyn of Texas, and John Barrasso of Wyoming, have already indicated they're seeking the top leadership spot. And it is possible that the far right faction in the Senate will put forward its own candidate as well, guarantee it. This is someone who obviously has been not all the way there with his cognition. And it's quite fascinating to me that it took this long for him to make the actual statement that he's not going to remain in position of leadership. The question is, has he been a leader for the last year? What about two years? Is he actually pulling his own strings or someone else doing it? What's the benefit of having someone who's obviously in significant mental decline in front of everybody remain in position of top leadership authority? All right, Jordan, we knew this was coming at some point or assumed it would. Um, and here it is. Yeah, I mean, Mitch McConnell's retirement is, or stepping down, him stepping down from power, is one of those moments where you want to celebrate, but you really can't. This is somebody who accomplished just about everything he wanted in the Senate for the past couple decades, yeah. especially over the past 10 years or so. He completely transformed the makeup of the Supreme Court legislation in this country. The tax code. I mean, there there are things that are going to have generational impacts because of him. So it's it's weird. It's you want to celebrate. Oh yeah, good riddance. You're terrible, but nothing really changes. The the person who's going to replace him uh, as Republican leader in the Senate is going to be equally terrible. Whoever replaces him in a Senate seat in Kentucky is going to be equally terrible. So it's it's tough. Nothing materially changes. It feels right. a lot like Kissinger. He died yep. at what a hundred, having gotten everything he wanted, wreaking havoc all over the globe, and died peacefully with his family at home. It's just like, ugh, how do you celebrate that? Like nothing, nothing changes. This person didn't experience anything bad. Yeah, and he basically said uh, he's stepping down because you know he's comfortable now. Uh, he's accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. He's clear about his accomplishments. We're going to talk about it. Accusations 
that the judge in charge of Wendy Williams guardianship accepted money from other individuals who um, she awarded guardianship to. This is strange. Put up the picture full mass. Judge Lisa Sokoloff, who is overseeing the Wendy Williams guardianship, awarded guardianships to multiple people and or law firms that gave direct money to her campaign. So let's go down the involvement in the Williams case. Uh, Williams was diagnosed with primary uh, progressive aphasia uh, and dementia, all right? Uh, Frontotemporal dementia last year. And was being cared for by her son and family in Florida. Her financial accounts were frozen in 2022 after her former financial advisor at Wells Fargo noticed cognitive issues and filed a guardianship petition. The judge, all right, Sokoloff, then appointed a state administration lawyer, Sabrina Morrissey, as Williams' guardian and revoked her son's power of attorney. In the Lifetime documentary, the former talk show host is seen confused and often agitated. She explains she missed her family as she was attended to by her manager and former jeweler, Will Selby, and her then publicist, Sean Zanotti. Producers noted that Williams had no food in her refrigerator during filming, which began in August of 2022. The camera stopped recording the former talk show host after she was put into a facility in April of 2023. Williams' family claimed that Maurice has not disclosed, we're talking about a guardian, has not disclosed which facility the 59-year-old is being held, treated in. Her sister, Wanda Williams, claims that Williams can contact them, but they can't contact her. They have no idea where she is. Her beloved New York apartment was also emptied and put up for sale. Let me give you background on the judge now. So between 2019 and 2022, Judge Lisa Sokola reportedly received $5,720 in campaign donations from guardianships, uh, guardianship lawyers, law firms, or people involved with guardianship cases. The Manhattan judge awarded those same law firms and people with 62 guardianship appointments in 2022 alone. That's according to WABC 7 News. Atlanta Blackstar conducted a search that did not turn up any donations made by the current guardian to the judge presiding over Williams' guardianship documents. Revealed she was awarded several guardianship appointments by this same judge, however, in 2022. Paul Maderos, a guardianship lawyer in New York, also donated to the judge's campaign in 2022 and was awarded seven guardianship appointments that same year. However, he claimed there was no conflict of interest because he'd known the judge for 29 years. All right. Um, this is very convoluted. Uh, my heart, my prayers go out to the family and uh, Wendy Williams. I hate to see her going through this, uh, but it just seems adverse to common sense for a judge to accept money from an entity that she then basically awards money back to. I know this is not a violation per se of the rules. I'm saying it should be, okay? Um, Jordan, thoughts here? So we should separate the 
the attorney who is serving as Wendy Williams' uh, guardian uh, with the other instances, right? Because that attorney did not donate to this judge. Um, so I don't, I want, I think we're both on the same page. We're not saying yep. that this person did that and we don't right. want to assign any fault there. But yeah, uh, on the broader issue, of course, like that is a big conflict of interest. And it's, it's an issue throughout all of our politics from top level from presidential campaigns, members of Congress, all the way down to the judges and local races. Money in politics leads to potential conflicts of interest like this. And it's at, people don't pay as much attention to it at the local level because it's not as big. You see those dollar amounts and it's like, okay, so what? But in local races, that's, that's a, money. a good amount. Yeah, that's a, right, that's, that's real a money. really yep. solid amount. So it's an issue throughout our politics. I wish we would do something about it. I wish people cared and talked about it more because yeah, you shouldn't have the opportunity to donate to a judge that could later hear your case. That's right. it's a exactly. big issue. It's if they're simple. expecting a donation in the next cycle, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Yep, well said. All right, um, Clarence Thomas hired a clerk, has hired a clerk who hates black people. Okay, kids, you're not put it up full mass. We actually talked about the comments this person has made before. Now, uh, this individual is at the top of the judicial food chain in the United States of America, Crystal Clanton. The white woman who went viral for sending a racist text message or messages to be precise, including one that said, quote, I hate black people, end quote. Has been hired as a law clerk by the United States Supreme Court via Clarence Thomas. The announcement was made last week by George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, which is the alma mater. Wow, Clanton previously worked as a law clerk by two federal judges, U.S. District Judge Corey Mays, that's Birmingham, Alabama, and Chief U.S. District Judge William Pryor. Uh, this is an Atlanta-based 11th Circuit, U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. This story is fascinating. A misconduct investigation was executed by Democratic lawmakers to evaluate Clanton's past racist behavior following her stint as national field director for the right wing group Turning Point USA, Charlie Kirk and the gang, okay? In 2017, a damning story about the group in the New Yorker revealed that Clanton had sent a text message to an associate exclaiming, quote, I hate black people. She did it in all caps, by the way, for emphasis. I hate blacks, end of story. That same year, Clanton's excuse for the alleged behavior is that she did not remember sending the messages. In addition, she told the New Yorker, they quote, do not reflect what I believe or who I am, end quote. Clanton then resigned from Turning Point, but was then hired by who? Jenny damn Thomas. I thought they didn't talk about court cases and things like that. Justice Thomas had previously stated that Clanton lived with the pair for almost a year. Listen, no issue here, none at all. Put up that face, that picture again of everybody's face here. Ironically, I think they all hate black people, including Clarence. All right, Jordan, hell of a thing, unbelievable, unimaginable. She says something so offensive that she has to, she has to step down. 
from an organization that embraces racism, Turning Point USA. That's how racist it is. To only be picked up by the US Supreme Court. I, look, we've talked about Clarence Thomas before. And of course, I'm in no position to talk about his views, his understanding and relationship with race or his own race. Um, but it's weird that these things keep happening. It's very strange. His stance on affirmative action has always befuddled me because it's a longstanding open one that he's he's had disdain and animus toward affirmative action, despite admitting he benefited from that system to get into Yale. And then you see this, that she's not mincing words. It's not a, a slip of the tongue or maybe it could be interpreted wrong. She explicitly said she does not like black people. Right, and more than <laughs> one time. Yeah, <laughs> right. That should disqualify you from any job in the country, especially the Supreme Court. It's just something I'll never wrap my head around. It, just to get inside that guy's brain for a minute or a day would be really fascinating. Self-hating um, is what we call it from where I'm from. All right. So I don't think you can change that part of human nature. But what you can do is you can make kids resilient against it. And the way you do that is by giving them a great education so that they know that they have potential. And the other thing is to give them business models, role models, and opportunities within their own neighborhood. You know, black men who are running barbershops, who are running bars, who are running dance studios, who are running local businesses, restaurants, etc., and who are part of that community. And you know, when I was a kid, my uncle was the first Irish Catholic president of our country. And when he ran for president, there was a tremendous resurgence in anti-Catholic sentiment in this country, and, I, and a resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. I remember crosses being burned when I was a kid against an anti-Catholic president, a lot of other, I was called a mick, a mackerel snatcher, all these anti-Catholic slurs when I was a kid. But it never bothered me. I, if somebody called me that, I would think that guy's got a problem. But I didn't think I have a problem. And that because I had a great education, I had a family who loved me, I had role models in my country, I had confidence in my own future. Oh, you know, those kind of things had no impact on me. And that's the kind of resilience that we want to give the black American children so that they have so much confidence in their own future that when they do encounter the inevitable racism, that it will bounce off them, that they'll be you know, like the Avengers, they'll be immune to it. And then we don't have to stop racism altogether because we're never gonna be able to do that, but we can have children that are not affected by it that don't internalize it, that don't see it as their problem. They see it as the person whose race is problem. Yep, let's put up the picture full mass. Um, so what Junior is saying here, RFK Junior, uh, is very antithetical, adversarial to what Dr. King talked about. He talked about how to solve the entire ecosystem of what we understand as racism in America and beyond. So. Patriot Takes recently shared three videos of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. speaking to a room full of black people about racism, okay? The clips are from when the Kennedy 2024 campaign kicked off Black History Month, understand the context, by hosting a panel discussion at the Art Lounge Collective in Los Angeles, starting on the 1st of February. 
RFK Jr., uh, who's running as an independent in the 2024 presidential race, uh, he is in fact a self-identified Democrat, uh, but he's running as an independent, offered his insight on issues such as environmental racism, medical discrimination. But the part that has drawn scrutiny is how the affluent Kennedy is white-splaining. Ladies and gentlemen, it's called white-splaining to black people, how education is the key to making black people immune from racism. And here's how he led up to this theory. I'm gonna say this, a lot of the liberal energy to deal with racism, systemic racism in this country has been directed at trying to make people so they're not racist anymore. Through education, through sanctions, through cancellation, whatever. And all of these things are important. But I would say that we're never gonna eliminate racism. We are hardwired from the 20,000 generations that humanity spent wandering the African savanna and little tribal groups. We're hardwired to look for differences in other people and then to, to essentially practice race. Looking for differences in other people, sir, um, is not racism. Racism is a system, it's a systematic approach uh, that can be eradicated, that can, in fact, be de significantly decreased or eliminated. Understand that racism and seeing differences are not synonymous. Um, somebody on your team should have explained that to you. I'm, a ho I'm highly disappointed. Now, uh, let's put this picture up again, um, full mass. So there are a lot of people obviously floored by this commentary. And naturally, many of them did support. And some probably still do it. They would just like him to correct himself, okay? So the truth is, white politicians, regardless of party affiliation, we'll keep, we'll keep his picture up, all seem to have the same issue when it comes to connecting with the black collective. RFK may not have been as superficial or manipulative or egregiously racist as white conservatives when they try to appeal to black folk. But the inherent condescension was still there. Jordan, always a pleasure having you on the program. Tell people how they can follow you, check out your great work. Thank you as always for having me, it's, it's a pleasure. You can follow me at Jordan Yule on Twitter and my podcast is called The Insurgents. You can get that at insurgentspod.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Always a pleasure, my friend. All right, remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of the planet. Remember, the truth is always indisputable.